0: just before I uh, read that text, um, I just want to give you some context. You know when you're, watch- you're going through a series uh, and- on television and the story and the narrative is moving, and if you don't watch the show for a week and then you come back to it, sometimes it's really helpful when they say, previously on, <laughs> and you're like, oh yes, now I remember what's going on. Well, as we're reading through uh, letters, like the, letters to the this letter to the Philippians, we're really breaking it down and looking at it and, and examining it. And, but the, the first churches, they sat down and they read these in their entirety, so they kind of got the whole context. Of course, they meditated on them for weeks and months and a lifetime. But sometimes when we dive in, if I just jump into the middle, it's, it's always helpful to have the uh, previously on Philippians. So I'm going to just give that to you in 60 seconds here. So Paul writes this letter. He's in prison. He's in Rome. And Philippi is a uh, military garrison, kind of military town. There's constant reminders everywhere in Philippi of the strength of Rome. Constant reminders uh, because of the volume of retired soldiers in Philippi of who's in charge. So Paul calls the church to live according to who's really in charge. Christ alone. Christ the king. And so he calls them to walk in congruence with their heavenly citizenship and it's a way of saying you know you are governed by a sovereign you live your life according to the wisdom of the law of this particular sovereign and you live that way so he's calling the church in this sort of greco-roman context to have their their not only their ethics formed by the wisdom of god's word but their posture towards the culture formed by the wisdom of god's word the way in which they love and care for uh the community I mean, one of the reasons why Christian communities exploded in the first century was because they were caring and loving for uh, the poor who didn't belong to the church. And in the ancient world, that was just not a thing that was ever done. Jesus Christ, quite literally, uh, changed the world by the way in which he related to the poor rather than sort of walking by them and neglecting them or oppressing them, but rather serving them. And so when church communities emulated that, that is sort of walking in congruence with Their kingdom citizenship so paul starts in chapter one and he says i hope that god who began this good work and you will complete it and then into chapter two we're given this christ hymn which is this old creed the poem that says that jesus christ did not consider his deity with god something to be grasped and clung onto but rather he laid it down so he's the king who stoops he is transcendent but tender he's powerful and yet incredibly patient Christ the King, unlike any other king that the world had ever known, who established his kingdom, not by accruing power, but by laying it down. Not by shedding the blood of his enemies, but shedding his own blood for his enemies. This is the Christ hymn in in chapter 2 that just magnifies that Jesus Christ, who is God, takes on humanity and becomes flesh. And that has implications because it means that the Christian faith is not just spiritual and abstract, it's, it's practical, and it's concrete, and it matters on Monday. And so we are in uni, union with Christ, united by Christ, full and indwelled by the Spirit of Christ, and then called to this life of emulating Christ, which brings us then to this text, where Paul basically says, right before these verses, I want to share in Christ's sufferings. I mean, I want the shape of his life to be the shape of my life. And it's not just arbitrary suffering, like have a hard life. and It's very specific suffering. Jesus suffered because he claimed to be God who came to forgive the world of our sin. And then Paul was suffering because he preached that Jesus Christ was God who came to cleanse the world, take away our sin. And you and I take on the suffering of Christ when the message of our life is to proclaim our hope in Jesus Christ who came to take the world Uh, to take away the sin of the world and cleanse us of our sin. And so that, that suffering is not just arbitrary hard times. It means passion, to be driven by what Christ is driven by. Philippians chapter 3, 12 to 21. Not that I've already attained all of this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and I now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is God's word. So here we have this encouragement of joy and citizenship. In this conversation where he's calling us uh, to be imitators of Christ. And he starts out by saying, I haven't pulled this off. He starts this, this passage by saying, I've not actually attained this. There's a humility The gospel liberates us from self-righteous mask wearing. See, because if your glory is your own, if what makes you righteous is you, it's going to be difficult to be honest and transparent about your own failings. I want to. I'm not sitting, and notice where the whole thing goes is he doesn't go, you know what, I'm not pulling this off, and actually what's the use? I mean, I keep trying to overcome the, this, this, the sin and the struggle in my life or this particular area where there's real weakness of my character and I keep failing at it, so what's the point? I guess I'll just sit back and say, thank God for grace, it's like peanut butter, just slather that grace over me, I don't need to change or transform. The text doesn't sound like that at all. He's like, you know, I'm not actually pulling this off. And, but from this place of incredible insurance comes the drive and the desire for perseverance. The perseverance is rooted in assurance. The perseverance is not driven by the desire to somehow, you know, lock in the assurance. He's already got it in Christ. And so this is what we um, see that he does. He says in verse 12 that Christ has already made me his own. And this is key. Because now the motivator, and I'm not going to hammer this because last week I hammered it, the motivator for everything that we're doing is that we, we are already Christ's. He has saved us definitively and single-handedly. And so it's from that place of assurance that we strain every nerve for this thing called perseverance. When I was a kid, uh, grade 7, I started playing football. I got this poster from somebody, and it was a picture of a guy doing what they call in, you know, college America, you know, college football in America, the Hockenbuck, which is this. And he's doing this, and the poster says... I pressed toward the goal dot 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 this is basically the way that i interpreted interpreted all of scripture at that point in my life is like here's the thing that sounds really great dot 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 we all know that the apostle paul did not have touchdowns in mind when he wrote this but his his motivator for pressing on was not just a arbitrary perseverance whatever you're up to in life you're trying to score touchdowns press on persevere you're trying to build a business. Press on, persevere. You're trying to you know, uh, raise a, a family and kids that love God and love His ways? Press on, persevere. That plays out. That thing is that All those things are good and true. I mean, you're, I'm 100% behind the theology of vocation that what you're doing on Monday matters, that your worship isn't confined to a couple hours on Sunday, but that worship is like when you leave this place and you get about what you're up to this week, there's a theology of vocation that matters. But what's, what's at the heart of His perseverance is this, this desire to more and more resemble Jesus in whatever it is that he's up to? That's really the, the, the heart, the beating heart of his perseverance that uh, is motivating the action. Now, then he says, This one thing that I'm doing, I'm not pulling this off, but there's one thing I'm committed to doing. I'm going to forget the things that are behind and I'm going to press forward to the things which are ahead. So really what I want us to focus for the rest of our time this morning for the next 10, 15 minutes is what in my life do I need to be forgetting? And where in my life do I need to be pressing? He knows Jesus has done it all. For you and me, it's true too. It's done in Christ. We walk out of here and there's nothing left you and I need to do so that God says, I love you, I accept you. That's in Christ. It's it's astounding. Every time you stop for five minutes to think about that. (laughs) Think about your week and the thoughts, the emotions in your heart. Think about, I mean, the words that came out of your mouth, the actions. I mean, think about our week, and then think about the fact that God just looks down at us and goes, my beloved child, you're in Christ, and you are mine. Apart from your failures this week, it's astounding. So So Paul goes, okay, from that place... I'm going to forget some things, and I'm going to press on towards some things. So what are the things in our life that we need to be forgetting? So let's start with the forgetting. It's interesting even that Paul says forget things, because from the Exodus, God's been pretty committed to his children remembering things. It can't mean, for, you know, forget all the mistakes you made and the sins and the tra- just forget all of that and live, you know, No regrets because right? there's no way it means that, because from the Exodus, God was like, I'm the God that saved you out of slavery in Egypt. Remember? You know, and, and, you know, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, hey, when you get into this promised land, and you're living in houses you didn't build, and you're enjoying things that you didn't work for, remember your God. Remember the goodness of your God is saving grace, scandalous grace. I mean, God is all about remembering, and remembering the sin and the mistakes you made in the past so you don't do it again, and fall back into that crazy idolatry, wrapping your life around things. God's been pretty committed to saying, remember, 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 all through the Old Testament. You go through Israel's history, and after you get through history, you get to the prophets. The prophets are all like, hey, you forgot your God. Remember your God. Remember the the sin that caused this thing in the past. Don't go back there. All the way into New Testament. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, if you read it, he's like, hey, remember that you were once alienated from Christ. Remember you had no hope. Remember the sin that separated you from God. So there's a huge emphasis in the scripture on remembering. So what is it that we're supposed to forget? Because Paul is not confused. He's an he's academic. He's mega. So he's not writing things to Philippi and then writing things to Ephesus and going, man, I hope they don't swap letters because that's really going to confuse people. So what is it that we need to forget? We need to forget the things in our lives and Paul listed it ahead of here, and I, I won't re it because that was last Sunday's message, but we need to forget the things in our lives that we allow to define us and justify us and tell us who we are and give us a sense of identity. We need to forget the things that say, when, when we lay down and go, you know, my life is okay because of this. I matter because of that. I know I'm loved because of this. It, like, whatever that is, if that thing is not Jesus, Paul's like, you got to forget that. I'm not going to repreach last week's sermon, but last week Paul Paul lists a bunch of things that he he garnered his, could have garnered his identity from his resume. What we need to forget is not just the crippling regrets of of uh, sin that we that would tell us who we are and tell us we're failures and tell us that God, we not only that not only are the regrets of the sin but also the moral resume. I have to forget the resume that makes me say, actually, I, this is why God accepts me. If you have failures in your life, well, we all have, so I don't even know why I said it that way. We all have failures, ways in which we have failed. And there are things we have all done, that every time we think about it, it turns our stomach because it's embarrassing or hurtful or sorrowful, brings a sense of condemnation, and the failure, it's like the failure is telling us who we are. And Paul's like, you need to forget that because your failure does not tell you who you are. But it's not just the failure, it's the successes. You cannot allow the letters after your name, your average in, in, uh, in school that you're pursuing, the success of your business, the bank account, the house, the Pinterest perfect you know, whatever, fill in the blank. I mean, you can't allow any of these successes to define you and tell you who you are and justify you and give you a sense of identity. You've got to, we've got to forget it. And so he says, he said it last week, um, you know, he's got lots of things to forget. And uh, it's not just the things that, it's not just the, um, the successes he needs to forget. He's also done atrocious things that he thought he was doing the right thing. Paul... Uh, In the book of Acts, chapter 7, he's watching Stephen get stoned. They're laying the coats at Paul's feet. Paul's watching the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, who is preaching Christ as the fulfillment of the Messiah. Paul, who at that point had not had his eyes open to Christ and his grace. Paul is like highly committed. Paul loves God and he's highly committed to keeping the law. And Paul's watching all this and he's like, this is right and good. And then, in, that's Acts chapter 7. And then in Acts chapter 9, Jesus knocks him off his high horse on the Damascus road. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So when Paul says, I've got to forget the things that are behind, he's got hefty things to forget. Hefty things to not allow, attach his identity to. Not only his accolades, but the, but, but the, but the horrendous things that would, could be used by the enemy just to say you're a a failure and you will always be a failure. And you now have to pay your penance for the rest of your life to make up for the sin that you've done. You see, that's not the motivator here for Paul. He's not saying it's a good thing I'm in prison because there's got to be top marks for for getting arrested because I got a lot of penance to make up for. I watched Stephen get stoned, so it's a good thing I'm in prison because maybe that'll balance it out. That's not Christian faith. A tit-for-tat religious system is not Christianity. There's a lot of other world systems that operate that way. Let the good outweigh the bad, but not Christianity. And so, he's got to forget all this stuff. But enough about that. Let's talk about where we should be pressing. Where in my life do I need to really persevere and press on? In in a desire to emulate Jesus. I mean, when I look in the mirror, what areas of my heart and my mind and my life, I'm like, this is not a lot like Jesus. And what's my response to that going to be? Is my response to that going to be, oh my goodness, I'm nothing like Jesus in, my er- in this area of my life, so I will do nothing about it. Or is my response going to be, you know, I'm nothing like Jesus in this area, er- or I'm faltering and failing it. I'm not like Jesus in this area of my life, but wow, I want to be. I mean, I, I- wow, oh God. And from this incredible childlike faith in the same way that you know children always want to be older you no know, kids are always like i can't wait till i'm 10 because i can do this i can't do it am 12 because my parents said once i'm 12 i gotta do that and then they're 15 i can't wait till i'm 16 because i can drive i can't wait till i this is how children get excited about the next thing and that is like the childlike faith that the, the paul the apostle is in prison and he's like Man, I want to press on. I mean, there's this, there's this thing in my life that I am not like Jesus here, but I, wow, do I really, I really want to be. Oh, God, would you do a deep work in me and transform me? The reason why this is so significant is because at the end, when, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself a bit, but at the end of the passage, he's talking about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. He's like, even with tears in my eyes. What's he talking about? He's not talking about the, the unsaved Greco-Romans in Philippi. He's talking about Christians who have become enemies of the cross of Christ because there is no evidence of a desire for perseverance in their life. They're like, hey, we like this idea about the forgiveness of grace, but there's two ditches that Christians have always struggled with. The one ditch is legalism, and the other one is lawlessness. And what Paul's getting at here is the lawlessness part. Right? The problem of Galatia was different. Hey, you guys think that all your religious disciplines are saving you, and that's a code red. But That's not the problem in Philippi. In Philippi, what Paul's saying is, oh, I'm grieved that there's people who they have no resemblance to the love and the grace and the kindness of Christ, the desire to serve, lay their life down, give their life away, but it doesn't seem to bother them. They don't, it doesn't seem to matter. They don't care. So you see, Paul is paul is saying wow i really want to press on i'm not there at all but i i want to so for you and i what is that i mean i know i mean in some ways i know the really glaring failures in my life i'm aware of them Uh, some of them my family's like hey are you aware of this so i like i have a family that's close to me to be like a ps um here's some ways in which that wasn't like a lot like jesus so i have that some of you have that we have friends but if you're sitting here t- this morning and you're really confused and you're just like, wow, this, this sermon isn't really resonating with me because I, I, can, I can't really, nothing's coming to mind, uh, hey, let's just, you know, let's hang out and I'll help you out. <laughs> I'll just, and where I'll start is your, is your nauseating self-righteousness. Like, that's probably where I'll begin. Like, in a totally loving, gentle, pastoral way, but I mean, that's where I'm going to begin that your sin doesn't even occur to you. So Paul is like, I, I want to press on in this. And he says, I want to press towards uh, the prize of the upward call. The prize is the call. I mean, God is the prize. Jesus is the prize. Um, there's no, there, we, we don't want to, um, uh, what's the word I want to use, overthink? Maybe not that. I don't think we want to mystify with the prizes. Like somehow there's like Jesus Christ, the resurrection, the restoral of all things, the king who will come and restore the earth. And we're like, okay, that sounds good. Great. Let's just park that. But what's this prize? I mean, what could the prize be? No, that's the prize. It's just living in amazement of that. And so you see that there's this call to, um, to this um, c- you know, congruence with identity. And it's an identity that's received. It's not an identity that you, you go out and achieve. If you have to achieve your identity, that's exhausting. If there's people in your life who have to clamor for their acceptance all the time, that might work. For months or maybe years or something, but at some point you're just gonna say, forget it. This person is not worth the emotional trauma of me clamoring after their acceptance. And so that's not what God is inviting you into. The press on doesn't mean clamoring for the acceptance, but from it, from this glorious acceptance. And so that's why he says in verse 17, like, like join me, you know, join in imitating me. Because right? there's no earning, there's just this uh, you know incredible enjoyment going on in Paul's life that ends up being very tangible and practical. It's not uh, it's not uh, just merely sort of ethereal and spiritual. And so, uh, when you look at verse 18, and I touched on this earlier. He talks about those who don't the Christians that don't get a sense of this sort of urgency of wanting to press on, and he says their god is their belly. It's this great image that you find throughout uh, wisdom literature and Proverbs where to God be your belly, it's appetitive. It's like this image of being led around by your appetites. And it's like, well, whatever I happen to desire and want must be good and true, because after all, I want it, and how could I possibly be wrong? All of my cravings and desires and thoughts must be true because I want them, and P.S. I'm the king, and the king is never wrong. So what, the, what, what Paul's getting at with that language of like their God is their bellies, he's like, There's people who are with their mouth professing Christ, with their mouth saying, Thank God for grace that forgives our sin. But there's no evidence that they care to emulate the one who saved them in grace. And so, uh, this is disheartening for Paul. He goes on in verse 20, and I'm going to close with this. He says, you know, but our citizenship, it's in heaven... And uh, from it, you know, we're awaiting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who transforms our lowly body into his glorious body. It's just this direct reference to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and his physical body being glorified. And I, I, I talk about this a lot at Redeemer, and I do it intentionally, because here in the West, the way that most people think about heaven here in the West is way more Plato and Plutarch than New Testament. Way more. You want to know who was talking about dying and going to heaven? Those are air quotes for those of you listening on the internet. I'm doing air quotes right now. Plato talked that way. Leaving the physical and existing in the ethereal. Like that, Plato and Plutarch talked that way. Dying and going to heaven. Leaving and going away. But in the New Testament, this physical resurrection of Jesus that bodily that keeps coming back is important. Because it is, because in the end, it is the renewal of what God began, which gives significance to your ministry, significance to what you and I are supposed to be up to on Monday, significance to pressing on, emulating Christ, and then living as ministers in Kitchener-Waterloo. The significance is, we're not just sort of biding our time here in this physical space until we get zapped out of here. Jesus Christ is coming to renew all things. I talked about it last week. I won't dial into... Uh, more into it now but the implications of forgetting what is behind forgetting the identity stuff and forgetting the the failures or or the successes and letting them defining forgetting what's behind and then reaching forward to really wanting to emulate Jesus and live in the radicality of sort of an outward facing life like what Jesus did the day-to-day significance of this is that we become ministers who unlike Plato and Plutarch thought, you're just going to leave this nasty physical stuff and exist someplace else. It doesn't matter whether you are going to work or school or, or recreation. Everything you're doing is to the glory of God. Whether you're enjoying mountains and lakes and skies and going camping, or you're enjoying the buzz of the city, or you're working for renewal, or you're feeding the poor, or you're putting clothes in the bin, or next month we're putting socks in the bin, or we get downtown... Uh, Jesus help us get downtown. We get back downtown, and a homeless person walks into the service like they used to pre-COVID, and you can go over and give them some some cookies and give them a coffee. Whatever it is that we're up to, you're recycling your cans, ecological responsibility. It's not all this futile thing that we sort of say it really matters for 80 or 90 years until we die and enter into some plane of non-existence. You know, if you're an atheist or agnostic, you cease to exist. You say everything really mattered while you were here, but in the end you know that you know, there's, there's no sign we ever existed in the cosmos when the sun burns out. And the only way to have joy in your heart is to not think that existentially about it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the glorified body, the significance of that is that you and I get the glorified body. The end game of Christianity is what God did in the beginning. He's not wasting anything. He's restoring everything. And in the same way that a still lake reflects the glory of the sky you and i are to press on so that more and more our hearts and the ways in which we live reflects the glory of jesus we're going to fail at it because we're sinners but we're committed to pressing on because united to jesus he calls us righteous the burden of cultural renewal does not rest on our ins- our insufficient shoulders we're called to be ministers you know, we're, we, are, we are called to press on and persevere and be ministers. But the burden of cultural renewal is not on our insufficient shoulders. The prophet Isaiah said that the government rests upon his shoulders, Christ's shoulders. And the government will rest upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Right? So the, the government that is to come to bring the world Politics, you know, proper, the world that we wish that we had, the justice without the, in, the paradox of injustice, and these things that I'm always referring to. I mean, Jesus is going to bring that. So you and I aren't crushed by leaving here. The end of the sermon isn't get out there and change Kitchener to Waterloo, uh, Kate Everton, it's all up to you. The burden is not there, but I'll tell you what, we're not passive observers. The grace of Jesus and the, the wonder of the cross and the wonder that even though you do not deserve to be called righteous, I, this preacher, I do not deserve to be called righteous. We are, and Jesus, we're called that. From that wonder, we are called to great activity. So the Apostle Paul is not like, oh, thank God for grace. I just lived this life of inactivity. It's massive activity, but it's fueled from joy. And there's no guilt, and there's not attaching as an identity to it. There's no lever pushing. There's no button pushing. It's finished in Christ. And so we're called... Uh, to this And friends, as you go out on Monday, your colleagues and your classmates and your neighbors and your friends, if their faith is not in Jesus Christ, they are wrapping the totality of their identity around something quite small, quite temporal. Something that time can take away, something that sickness and disease can take away, something that the economy turning the wrong way can take away, something that politics can take away. They have, they have put their hope in something that is shifting and weak. But you and I, we have our hope in Christ the rock, who is like an anchor, indestructible. The world can melt, but you and I can have peace in our hearts. And it's from this place that we're called to go and be ministers of this gospel, to preach Christ and Him crucified. Forgetting what is behind, we reaching forward to for those things that are ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, in Christ Jesus. Amen. May this be our prayer. Let's pray.